Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome. We've got a phenomenal program planned for you tonight. We're going to be continuing our series called A Drink with Dr. Dennis McKenna. Dennis is a good friend of the show. He's been on the show many times. I've known Dennis for many years. So sit back, grab a drink, maybe a smoke. Enjoy this conversation. The Human Experiences in Session. My name is Xavier Katana. My guest for this evening is Dr. Dennis McKenna. Dr. Dennis McKenna is an ethnopharmacologist who has studied plant hallucinogens for over 40 years. He is the author of many scientific papers and co-author with his brother, Terrence McKenna. He holds a doctorate from the University of British Columbia. He received postdoctoral research fellowships in the Laboratory of Clinical Pharmacology, National Institute of Mental Health and in the Department of Neurology, Stanford University School of Medicine. He's the founding board member of the Hafter Research Institute, a nonprofit organization focused on the investigation of the potential therape- therapeutic uses of psychedelic medicines. Dennis, it's a pleasure, my friend. Welcome back to HXP. It's so good to have you back here. It's a pleasure to be back, Xavier. How are you? I'm doing well. So we're do, we're doing Very this good. we're doing this drink with Dr. Dennis McKenna thing again. What do you what are you drinking over there? <laughs> well, <laughs> I grabbed some white wine, which was okay. the uh, the closest thing available. Okay, I'm drinking some red wine, so we're set with okay. that. Very you, good. You've been you've been pretty busy these days. I mean, I talked yep. to you I talked to you about a week ago and you were down in in Peru, I think, right? That's right. Yes, we uh, just finished up two retreats down there. That'll be the third uh, retreat of this year that we've done. And uh, yeah, so it's keeping me busy. And uh, and then we have another one coming up in November, which I think will be a very interesting retreat. Uh, not like anything we've done before. Uh, we're going to have... Uh, uh, my friend Alexandre Tanis uh, joining us. He is a specialist in sound, sound therapy, sound resonance, the use of sound in ceremonial space, and uh, probably the world's expert on just about every aspect of sound that you can imagine. Hmm. I've uh, had experiential sessions with him uh, on many occasions, and uh, he really knows how to use sonics and resonance in conjunction with altered states to produce rather amazing experiential uh, programs, I guess you could say, that uh, many people uh, resonate with. I couldn't resist the pun. 
But anyway, <laughs> if you look at my Twitter feed or my Facebook page, you can find information about it. Uh, or you can send uh, an inquiry to uh, events at McKenna.academy. Okay, getting that out right away. I mean, since you mentioned it, tell us about a little bit more about the Academy, because this is something that something new that you're doing it. You're you're calling it the the catalytic catalytic nexus for the transformation of global consciousness. Wow, uh, close, close, Xavier. We're calling it. We're calling it. It's the McKenna Academy mm. of Natural Philosophy, right? And uh, it's going to have its operations mostly focused in South America, but not confined to that. And I call it a catalytic nexus for the transformation of global consciousness in the sense that the programs of the academy goal beyond just psychedelic retreats or ayahuasca retreats, although we certainly do that. Mm-hmm. But we do, uh, we're offering a variety of educational programs, even courses, other types of, uh, of programs to help people educate themselves or re-educate themselves about their relationship to nature, which is something that we really need to be thinking about. Of course. Because We're all aware of the crisis that we face. So my idea with the academy is, I guess I'm basically an academician at heart, you know, and I love teaching and I love sharing information. I love bringing brilliant minds to a place where they can share their wisdom and ideas. Mm -hmm. And that's what you do with an academy, right? So this will be our first official uh, event sponsored by the Academy, this one in November, and I'm excited about it. Alexand is an amazing character, a, a teacher of mine for many years, and uh, he has so much wisdom and so much knowledge to impart. I think it's going to be a really stimulating 10 days. And you're designing it as a sort of modern-day mystery school. And, I mean, you've been doing this yourself for you know what, like 40 years or more? So, and you've been, you know, now it seems like you're starting to take the charge on and take the lead on this by with this in, this institution. Yeah, exactly. Uh, many, I mean, I have been doing retreats in the Sacred Valley f- uh, since basically about uh, 2012. Uh, and as we've done those, the concept has evolved. So, um you know, and, and I, as you know, I've been involved with ayahuasca and other psychedelics for, as you say, more than 40 years. Mm-hmm. But it's only in the last, since uh, since 2012, a little bit before that, that I've been doing regular retreats in the Sacred Valley. And this time we decided to uh, take a slightly different direction and, and not only include you know the uh, the medicine experiences but also provide uh, a context where people can uh, appreciate the pre-incan um, culture and their understanding of sound and altered states we have one of our faculty members on this upcoming retreat is a guide who we work with in our in our ayahuasca retreats who uh has made us quite an in-depth study of all this and mm. kind of the esoteric 
energies and technologies that were available to the Incas mm -hmm. and the predecessors of the Incas. And a lot of that had to do with the use of sonic energy, mm. uh, you know, mm -hmm. sound energy. I mean, sound, basically. But turns out there's a lot more to sound than you might think. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, we, <laughs> yeah. we've had a, a bunch of authors recently on that, and we've been exploring the history of psychedelic usage through ancient times. It turns out, Plato was on this stuff, Socrates, like a lot of the modern philosophy that we, you know, kind of operate on today and are learning from today was influenced by psychedelics. Then if you look at someone like Graham Hancock, he talks about how, you know, ayahuasca or DMT was the reason that these cultures were sort of, you know, collecting and moving around to different parts of the earth. So, and this has been imbibed into, ingrained into our culture for thousands and thousands of years. Yes, yes. Yeah, good that you mentioned Graham. I've just finished his latest book. Uh, I mean, I am a total fan of Graham's work. <laughs> yeah. And uh, his latest book, uh, America Before, mm -hmm. have you read it? Yeah, I got through it. Yeah. I mean, okay. it's a long read. It's like a 500-page book, but it's worth it because it, he really it, studies. It's definitely worth it. He brings more documentation in together in this book than he has with any of the previous ones. Mm -hmm. So he builds a very solid case. And the case you know, the picture that it gives us of the ancient past is nothing like conventional, the conventional view of history or archaeology. I mean, for one thing, it goes back and now, you know, these are not crazy numbers. These are well-documented numbers in the New World. Humans arrived in the New World at least 130,000 years ago, mm -hmm. probably much earlier. And so that just completely overturns, uh, you know, the conventional view of when hominids, they weren't even, <clears throat> you know, when hominids, when humans made it to the new world and, and indicates that, you know, they probably didn't come over the land bridge mm -hmm. initially. They actually probably crossed the ocean, which is, you know, I mean, it just vastly uh, exceeds anything we thought that uh, such uh, such uh, ancient races would be able to do so so it's very interesting to the, his theory that there was a more or less advanced like not not computers and lasers but more like an 18th century level of civilization these people had you know, ocean-going ships, basically. Mm -hmm. And they had, you know, writing. They were cartographers, and they actually generated maps of parts of the world that for years were not even known, you know, to the Western world, not admitted at that time. So, and you've read the book, so you know read the book. This. I mean, why, Dennis, do you think then, you know, for us publicly, why is the history of this been hidden? Why are psychedelics, namely, you know, plant medicines so demonized in, in mainstream culture, mainstream media? I mean, the 1990s, you've got the Just Say No campaign, Nancy Reagan doing her whole speech, I mean, the war on drugs. Why, why suppress this 
technology if it's been around for so long? Well, I think it's I think it's numerous numerous factors. I mean, for one thing, um, you know, psychedelics are dangerous because they not because they're dangerous substances, but because they make you have dangerous ideas. You know, unorthodox ideas, and the powers that be are never receptive to that. You know, they don't really want people to make their own discoveries and think for themselves because they have. They have an agenda. You're supposed to accept a certain societal or religious or other, you know, sets of dogma. And if you insist on thinking for yourself and push back against the conventional wisdom as something like Graham's work does, you know, and it's very well done, it's very well documented, so you can't you know, you can't really fault it in terms of being sloppy scholarship or uh, anything like that. Mm-hmm. Why are people so threatened by it? I'm not sure. It's because there's a certain narrative, you know, that we've accepted for a long time. For instance, the idea that, you know, humans originated in Africa, they moved out of Africa, thence into Europe and Asia the possibility that they might have uh, reached the uh, the so-called new world much earlier than anyone imagined. Mm. I don't know why people are threatened by it. I mean, I, I think that science, you know, if it, if it purports to call itself a science, should be looking for the truth, you know. But I, I think something that, uh, that, you know, Graham's work and the fact that he has been so denounced Hmm. by the uh, so-called archaeological community. And as he makes very clear, it's because it's not a science anymore. You know, it's a cult. It's Hmm. become a set of accepted doctrines and views of ancient history that, uh, you know, that are not to be challenged. Hmm. And so he comes along and challenges it, and he, uh, he makes a lot of people mad. But I think I think anyone who's curious, you know, and who is really honest, can't review what Graham has written, can't look at that in an objective way and say, wait a minute, you know, the picture that we thought we had of the ancient past, it just does not fit right. these new facts that have come to light. Yeah. You know, and to me, that's exciting. But I'm I'm not a dogmatist. You know, I'm not invested in in some set of dogma. And, and you know, academics is you know, unfortunately, I mean, it, it's a notoriously sort of hidebound uh, institution. It's not it's not mm. generally open to new ideas. Mm-hmm. Because it threatens the threatens the status quo. Have you, you have know, you ever have you ever had your tenure threatened with any of your work? Well, threatened in what sense? I mean, I don't know. Has has anyone has it? Have you ever received pushback from you know exploring psychedelics and plants in the way you, that you do? Not really. Okay. That's a good <laughs> I mean, thing it's to hear. Been, yeah, it's been surprising. I mean, I I've not gotten you know, death threats or anything like that. A lot of people disagree with me. Sure. You know, they're, they're free to do that. That's what, uh, you know, what free and and fair dialogue is about. I, in fact, you know, my whole shtick is don't believe me, you know, I mean, 
I'm not being asked to be, I'm not asking to be believed. I'm asking or suggesting people should think for themselves, you know, mm -hmm. and they should use these God-given brains that we have to, you know, figure it out, come to your own conclusions. That's the one thing that's quite, uh, you know, that's quite attractive and beautiful about psychedelics because, you know, you, you don't have to accept any set of dogma. You don't have to have faith. You can just have the experience. You know, it does not take faith or belief to benefit from psychedelics. What it takes is courage, you know, and if you have the courage to to smoke the pipe or drink the cup or whatever it is you do and actually trust yourself enough to have that experience, then you can decide for yourself what it means, hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and that's an important thing. And any powerful spiritual technology, there are legions of people who are ready to tell you what it's supposed to mean, you know, right. and how you're supposed to think about it. What I like about psychedelics is it gives you the opportunity. I mean, you can listen to those people. There are lots of people ready to tell you how to interpret this and so on. But in the end of the day, it's the encounter between you and the medicine and whatever the medicine renders accessible to you. And so, you know, it throws you back on itself, on, on yourself, and it basically throws down a challenge. Like, here's something that's going to completely blow your mind and it's going to completely, uh, you know, disrupt your, your reference frame, mm. right. And what you thought, you knowed, mm -hmm. and it's your job to make of it what you will, you know, interpret it according to what, you know, trust yourself enough to, uh, to interpret it for yourself. You know, you can benefit from reading about other people's experiences. You can benefit from people's, you know, thoughts about, uh, you know, what it what it's really about and so on. But at the end of the day, you have to, you know, you, you just have to uh, draw your own conclusions. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing. Yeah. I mean, let's, let's talk a little bit about what occurs in the brain when a substance like DMT or psilocybin or those, you know, four compounds, LSD, um, iboga, what's happening in the brain as far as neuroreceptors and neurogenesis? Because I think in the 90s, there was this idea that the brain was a sort of, uh, you know, like closed system. Like once you, once you burned off this gray matter, once you burned off brain cells they never regrew back and that was it you know it lowered your iq yeah. you were just dumb for doing this stuff yeah. and then in i'm not i'm not sure what year it was the early 2000s maybe 2004 neurogenesis the idea of neuroplasticity came out where right. this right. understanding of the brain and and its flexibility and, and i mean we really don't know much about the brain at all so you know why are these compounds you know namely dmt psilocybin why are what impacts are they having on the brain why are they so crucial to you know mystical experiences and and learning and and evolution uh 
uh, you want to be, you, we're going to be here all night, Xavier, if we go too deeply into this. But, <laughs> but the, you know, what you're talking about, basically, the compounds that you name, DMT, psilocybin, mescaline, LSD, uh, you know, ayahuasca, these things are the what we think of as the classical psychedelics, right? There, there are plenty of psychoactive substances, plants, and so on that are psychoactive, and some will induce profoundly altered states of consciousness, but they are, strictly speaking, in the pharmacological sense, they're not psychedelics. And I kind of adhere to a uh, almost a reductionist definition of psychedelics because just as an arbitrary thing, under my definition, the definition of a lot of people and the definition that I like, simply because it kind of defines it, is the true psychedelics, the classic psychedelics, are what they call 5-HT-2A agonists, okay. right? Mm -hmm. So what's 5-HT? 5-HT is 5-hydroxytryptamine. It's serotonin, right? One of the neurotransmitters. So one important neurotransmitter in mediating states of consciousness. So you could call them the serotonin 2A receptors. And the 2A receptors are the target for these classic psychedelics. There are about 14 or 15 different kinds of serotonin receptors. Mm -hmm. They have numerous uh, functions all over the body. There's more serotonin receptors in the gut than in the brain. But the 2A receptors appear to be those receptors that are critical to the action of psychedelics mm -hmm. and having these mystical experiences and all that goes with that, you know, this neurogenesis phenomenon, this sort of, uh, you know, the, the altered state itself, the psychedelic experience itself rearranges connections in the brain, mm -hmm. that neuroplasticity thing that you're talking about. Uh, and it, it creates new connections and probably does, in fact, induce neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons. Right. Now, as you say, a few years ago, we thought that was, that was just forbidden, right? Like, it just didn't happen. Once you had a uh, given complement of neurons at birth, you only lost neurons mm. after that. It mm -hmm. was a long, slow you know, from birth to death, a long, slow state of neurodegeneration. Mm -hmm. That's not the current picture at all. The brain is enormously adaptive. It's plastic, and it, it responds to a stimuli from its, in, from its environment, and it can actually change its structure, can change its wiring, can change a lot of things about how it operates and that's in relation to environmental cues you know and 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 if you if you reflect a, a moment you know you you think you know it, it's like it's obvious right how could it be otherwise you know and and these these models that we created just overlooked something very important which is that you know especially in in primates especially in hominids with our you know, big brains, I mean, it is a lot, it is because of our enormous brains and the adaptability that that brings about that we are such a successful species. Mm -hmm. I mean, so, yeah. so, okay, so, you know, when we're defining intelligence, I mean, 
how how are we looking at you know what is intel what do we mean when we talk about intelligence are we because i mean because you know, pre-hominids i mean were they capable of you know learning and reasoning and you know are we as well are plants intelligent i mean there's i mean there's something happening there and I, i'm trying to understand better what that means what that relationship is like why drinking a cup of huasca tea is opening you know this this mystical experience for me and helping me on my journey through you know through life well because it happens to activate those receptors the that network of uh serotonin 2a receptors and other receptors it's you know nothing in the brain happens in isolation but it happens to activate that that network that mediates this kind of experience you know i mean that's really all it is and uh um you know a more more maybe important question is why? What is the value of mystical experience mm-hmm. to our existence, to our consciousness, mm-hmm. to our adaptation to the environment? You know, and that's a deeper question. And, and I don't know that anyone knows the answer, but what we can say is that, um, you know, that the notion that essentially that the, that the universe is full of mystery and meaning I mean that that's that's the you know that that that's the consequence of these mystical experiences. You know, if you look at the data, if you look at people in the psilocybin studies uh, who have who with terminal cancer, for example, they take psilocybin and it completely reframes their reference frame. You know, many of these people are terrified of dying because, in fact, they are dying mm-hmm. and. You know, that's all they can think about. But then they, with the psilocybin as an aid to sort of step outside their reference frame and examine their existential situation, they come away with a tremendously beneficial uh, sort of re-understanding of their situation, which can easily be put in. Many of them say, well, I was terrified of dying, but guess what? I'm alive now, you know, and I'm... I'm going to focus on that going forward. The fact that I am alive now in the moment, everybody dies sooner or later. We all have to face that. What use does it do to just focus on that and get all depressed about it? Better to focus on the fact that you're alive now, you know, and you're with your loved ones and you're more or less functional, but definitely, you know, on the, on the way out. But we, it helps to come to terms with that. So I think that, I think, and what keeps coming up again and again in these studies, to kind of get back to what you were saying, is the term meaningful. People say, this was the most meaningful experience of my life, or the fifth among the top five most meaningful experience of my life. Mm-hmm. What is so valuable, what's so important about having meaningful experiences? Right. I mean, why should we even care? Like, you know, who, who cares? Why should we care? Well, but obviously we do. I mean, our whole lives, you know, most of our lives are, you know, routine. I mean, it's not that they're not enjoyable and that sort of thing, but they're not these profound spiritual 
revelations most of the time. They're more or less routine. People long for something beyond that. I think they long for reassurance that, you know, we are not the limited beings that we appear to be. Mm-hmm. And the psychedelic experience or spontaneous mystical experience, for that matter, mm-hmm. you know, brings it to people and, and brings people an experience of something beyond themselves. And so it's meaningful It's because I think it's reassuring. doesn't even matter if it's true. You know, it, it, I mean, it, it, it does and it doesn't. But, hmm. you know, I mean, it's true in that you experience it, you know, and, and uh, I think you, I think it's safe. I think it's not inaccurate to say that anything you experience is true because you experience it to the extent that it's an experience, whether it has an objective reality. Well, then we don't know. You know, but, uh, you know, people have these experiences and they are personally meaningful for them. And somehow we really value that. You know, we, in fact, you know, many people with a mystical inclination, they spend years trying to, you know, achieve that kind of a reward. So it's interesting that you know, pretty much any schmuck can have this kind of experience, you know, mm-hmm. 25 milligrams of psilocybin in the right set and setting, and you're pretty much there, you know, if, mm-hmm. uh, and, and so people say, well, that's not, that's not a real mystical experience, you know, because mm-hmm. you took a drug, mm-hmm. right? You took a drug and so it can't be genuine. Mm-hmm. I'm here to tell you that every state of consciousness is reflected by a neurochemical set of uh, a neurochemical brain state. Sure. We're on drugs. We're made out of drugs and we're on drugs all the time. (laughs) Any kind of experience that we have is a drug induced experience. No, because our brains are engines that run on neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters are drugs. You know, so this idea that, well, it's not a real experience because you took a drug, I, I, I don't buy it. If you experienced it, it's real. If it's meaningful, who's going to tell you that it's not meaningful? That's for you to decide. That's your judgment. It's not for anybody to tell you what that it wasn't meaningful. You can say, well, gee, uh, felt pretty meaningful to me. Mm-hmm. That's all that matters. I mean, but there's there's something that Graham said when he was on the show that that really struck me is you know when you're when you're in the Amazon there's you know what hundred thousand plus species of plants and uh-huh. to realize that there are these two plants that when combined together you know create this brew that you know, creates this experience it indicates that there was a science that was active you know in this ancient period a long time ago. So an awareness or a, a cognition of how this could affect, you know, us. What do you make of that? I mean, how, how does that fit well, into the larger perspective of where we are now? Well, I think, I think, um, it's easy to, uh, look at this in a simplistic way. You know, and it's it's not quite the way you describe it. In the first mm-hmm. place, uh, you know, in in the eighty thousand or so species uh, that 
that we think are in the Amazon. Okay. You know, out of a total of about 250, 260,000 species of plants worldwide, mm-hmm. they think in the 80, in the Amazon has about a third of them, maybe 80, 85,000 species. The fact is that most of these plants are full of biodynamic compounds and DMT, right, is, is the one that gives ayahuasca its psychedelic kick. There are certain admixture plants that are prepared with ayahuasca and the other, the, the vine, as you know, mm-hmm. is not monoamine oxidase inhibitor Mm -hmm. that prevents the the breakdown of DMT in the gut and makes it orally active, right? Mm -hmm. Many, many plants contain DMT. It is not a rare compound, you know? I mean, it's not rare in the Amazon. It's not rare anywhere. It's even indigenous in the human body, right? It's endogenous in the human body. That's right. That's right. It is, in fact, a neurotransmitter in the human body. You know, we don't understand its function as well as something like serotonin, but it appears that it is a neurotransmitter. And because DMT is uh, only two steps away from tryptophan, right? Tryptophan is an amino acid universal in all organisms. It's one of the 20 that go into proteins. Two trivial enzymatic steps will convert tryptophan to DMT. So it's very, very common in plants, you know, and animals and fungi probably. And, and you know, I mean, certainly fungi have their own tryptamine derivatives like, like the psilocybin. So it's common. And there are many plants that conceivably could have been used to make ayahuasca. Mm. And in fact, people do. They make, they make analogs of ayahuasca because the other component of, of the brew is the, the vine, which contains the beta-carbolines, that do the MAO inhibition. But again, beta-carbolines, they're not as abundant in nature as DMT, but they're certainly not that rare either. So potentially – ayahuasca or ayahuasca analogs could have been made from completely different plants Mm -hmm. and you in fact do that you can do that Mm -hmm. and with a little knowledge of botany and what we know now a little bit of knowledge of chemistry and what's been published you know you can expect to be quite successful you can make an ayahuasca analog that will be every bit as uh, active as ayahuasca but how did this come back? How did this come about back in the day? Well, most likely it just came about through trial and error experimentation, mm-hmm. you know, but not random, not necessarily random experimentation. Um, when we did this conference, this ESPD 50 okay. conference a couple of uh, years ago, there was an archaeologist, ethnobotanist there, Manuel Torres, who gave uh, an excellent talk uh, about the probable uh, origins of ayahuasca. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about a particular area uh, in the in where Colombia, Venezuela, and Peru come together, the northern Vuapes region. And there was a very active uh, uh, chicha technology, making beers of various kinds. And beers are fermented beverages that you make from roots, 
or usually from roots like manioc. You can make them from fruits sometimes. These are just basically a fermentation technology, right? But the the people that made the the these chiches, they were curious, so they were in a you know in an environment where you know there were these other plants. Some of them had medicinal uses, including ayahuasca. Ayahuasca, the vine was used by itself. You know, not as part of a hallucinogenic brew, but probably as a, as a treatment for for parasites or something like that. But you know, human beings have gotten to where we have with uh, with respect to plants and the way that we exploit plants because we're curious, you know, and. Um, you know, you you can see much the same kind of curiosity and operate in operation in a modern day uh, craft brewer. You know, a craft brewer is always looking for new stuff, new ingredients to put in his his beers, mm. right? Mm. Uh, to make them taste different or to make something that the other guy doesn't have. And there's innovation that goes on. Maybe if I put some of this in, it'll make it taste different, give it a different effect. Manolo makes the point that there was a lot of that going on uh, in this area at that time. And he thinks that, you know, it, it, that ayahuasca really sort of appeared out of that, uh, you know, that atmosphere of experimentation just trying out different combinations and seeing how it was. And then, at some point, they tried the right combination, and you know they got uh, they got their minds blown. You know, so so that was a successful experiment, <laughs> and yeah. Hmm. So it's... I think maybe that's how it how it uh, how it might have taken off. Right. Is is there a specific role that has been identified for the existence of DMT in humans and nature? It, it seems kind of like it's a bit elusive as to why you know it even exists. I mean, is there? I mean, I'm going to get a little woo here about this, but I mean, it, does it? Is it a molecule that connects us into some hyper dimension, some you know, next level of reality, perhaps? You know that yeah. we don't see every sorry i was uh, i was pulling up uh, the uh distracted so so the question is what is what does it mean the no the, the it seems like the role of dmt in Hello? humans in the role of dmt in humans and right. nature yes okay. i can okay. i don't know i don't know what happened <laughs> neither do i <laughs> It seems like the role of DMT in humans and nature seems elusive to me. It's like this access to this mystical realm or compound mystical space, this hyperdimension that we're accessing when we ingest this compound. Do you have any theories about that? Is there something specific about the molecule that could result in you know, discovering more about why it's so important or why it has this effect that it has? Um, well, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a difficult question to answer. I mean, you, so you take DMT, you have this experience, you seem to be in this parallel reality 
in a certain sense. You could call it you appear to encounter entities, other intelligences in that space that that don't appear to be you or anything like you. But you have to remember, you're bringing your interpretive frameworks to this, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And just because that's what it appears to be doesn't mean that's what it is, you know. And, uh, uh, and you know, it, it's difficult to resist the temptation to say, well, I, you know, it opened a portal into another dimension. Certainly, you know, that may be our, our subjective impression. And maybe it does. But how do you how do you test that? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I mean, it, it, I mean, you know, I, I can be a wet blanket and I can say, well, you know, certain like dopamine is a neurotransmitter. It will have these effects. Uh, you know, serotonin is a neurotransmitter. It will have other effects. DMT is a neurotransmitter. Maybe it's just that when you smoke DMT, this is what happens. You know, and it's a reflection of brain architecture, brain chemistry, maybe, uh, rather than any uh, other dimension. So are you saying that the spiritual context that some cultures add to the experience of DMT could be just, you know, just that, their interpretation of something and an event? Like, I was watching a lecture that you gave today, and you were talking about um this 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 culture in the amazon that you know va- the value the purge that happens when you drink ayahuasca and they thought that it was mm-hmm. like some sort of energetic release you know like an energy right. leaving your body so you know these cultures identify with some sort of spiritual aspect to this compound and you know so I mean, that's that's why I'm, I mean, you're the scientist, so of course you would say, you know, it's it's just in the brain. But I'm wondering if it, you know, if it has a, a spiritual something else context. Well, yes, of course, but it's not the drug that has the spiritual aspect; it's the experience. Is right? it all the, you all or the, the drug experience? does is trigger that. Your experience has spiritual aspects to it. The drug seems to facilitate that experience. But, you know, this goes back to, you know, I I think a mistake that a lot of people made back in the day. I certainly made it. This idea that somehow the trip is in the drug. You know, it's not – it doesn't work that way. (laughs) You know, the drug is simply a molecule. It has the effects that it has when you – mix it with a human nervous system, you know, the nervous system, the, the, you can think of the drug in some way is like a musical score, you know? Uh, I mean, when you, and the instrument that plays, that plays it is the brain, actually the brain body, Mm -hmm. you know, when you put it into that biochemical soup, but it, goes through its pharmacokinetics it goes through its metabolism Mm -hmm. the symphony plays out and the symphony is what you experience as the psychedelic experience the drug on the shelf is simply a crystal on a shelf it it doesn't have any of these properties Mm -hmm. you know it's a trigger It, it it's a catalyst that lets the nervous system express itself in this way now 
you know, so then you can take this totally, you know, sort of subjective experience, say, well, it's all, it's all in my head. You know, there is no extra dimension. There is no portal to parallel universes or anything like that. It's just a subjective experience. You know, it's like a dream, mm-hmm. you know, but then, so you say, okay, well, there's nothing to it beyond that. But, you know, you're getting into some difficult epistemological territory because really what what else is there but the hallucination, the experience that our brains synthesize and present to us as reality? You know, I mean, is there anything beyond that? It, it Maybe, maybe not, but it's very hard to... Uh, you know, it's very hard to objectively know about it because we're caged. We're we're trapped or, I mean, trapped is a bad term because it implies that, you know, we're constrained. But in some ways we are inside of this neural hallucination that we create for ourselves and that we inhabit it. It's a model of reality. I very, I very often said this, you know, our brains construct a model of reality, essentially a hallucination that we proceed to inhabit, you know, so we're, we're living out our own movie all the time. We're not really direct, directly experiencing reality. We know Mm-hmm. enough to be pretty sure that mm-hmm. there's something out there mm-hmm. that's not the self, but we never experience that directly. Hmm. I mean, I, I really connect with your idea of, you know, like when you look at a musical sheet on a piece of paper, that's all it is, is to just to st- like, you know, writing on, on these notes on a piece of paper. But then when you apply the right. instrument and you play the music, then you're adding it to this, this extra dimension of, you know, time and space. So perhaps, perhaps the psychedelic is experiences the same way. You know, the, the molecule yeah. DMT is just that it's just a molecule, but when ingested and the brain being the instrument, that's when it allows us to play in inside this, reality yeah. that that we're creating you know for ourselves that's exactly it so it plays out through time to put it to play the the musical score with an instrument brings it to life it expresses it as a fourth dimensional object or a fourth dimensional not object but process same thing i mean i mean the drug in the, in the absence of the of the instrument to play it, which is our brains, is pretty inert, inert and, and frankly fairly boring, you know. But once you put it in the right context, then then you know then it plays. It plays in fourth dimension, and of course we are we are fourth dimensional uh, entities, you know, because we're. You know, you you look at a person and and they appear to be solid, and they are, but they're a process. You know, the fact that they're alive means they're metabolizing, and metabolism is something that expresses through time. You know, so that's the fourth dimensional aspect of personhood. When metabolism ceases, then there's not much to talk about because the person is dead, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, So we... 
you know, we normally don't think of these things. Um, we operate within a set of these assumptions, not really thinking too, too much about what, you know, about these interpretative structures that we put onto it. But when you, when you actually sort of focus in on those, then you have to, you know, you have to admit to yourself, there's all sorts of assumptions about the nature of reality, the nature of your own experience, you know, and, and uh, this comes up again and again with the notion that, you know, for example, encountering apparently non-human intelligences in the psychedelic state, you know, do, are these entities real mm. or are they fabrications of your own imagination or are they a, in, in that sense, are they a, a part of yourself, you know, that is presenting as something that isn't mm. the self. Mm -hmm. So these are tricky, tricky questions right. and we don't yeah. normally think about them. We use all these terms you know, without really thinking about them. It's, it's um, a mystery. I mean, that's that's yeah, part of the mystery aspect mystery. of it. And the question is yeah. too big for us to really understand and, and answer definitively, right? Can we accept that? Well, so far. So far, yeah. right. <laughs> right. And what about, what about at the moment of, you know, cardiac arrest, the moment of death? And, I mean, is there any relevance or truth to this idea that there's this surge of DMT that's being generated at the moment of cardiac arrest? It's very possible that there is, you know, uh, it would not be surprising that uh, you're probably thinking of, uh, ED Frexka's work on mm -hmm. this. Mm -hmm. And uh, is yeah. it just a neuroprotective function? Is it just, or well, that, that, that's enough. Right. If it, I mean, it is in fact neuroprotective. It's a very good antioxidant. And if, if you're having a ischemic attack, a stroke, essentially, uh, you know, if the body can mobilize those stores of DMT in the lungs, uh, and they're actively transported into the brain, then they, they would have this this uh, neuroprotective effect. They would prevent the degeneration of the neurons through hypoxia, through lack of oxygen. They would they would buy some time, you know. And it's perfectly reasonable, in in fact, you know that that the body would have these these protective reactions to that kind of event. I mean, a stroke probably mobilizes all kinds of responses, mm. but that might be one of the conference one of the you know one of the responses is the mobilization of massive amounts of DMT. Mm. Now the fact that this might also induce a profound psychedelic state may have nothing to do with the fact that it's neuroprotective and it's saving your life, but it might be, it's kind of a benefit. It's kind of a convenient side effect because you're, you know, you know how you go to the, you, you go to the dentist and they put the television on. So you, hmm. <laughs> you hmm. won't pay attention to what they're doing in there. Sure, well, it right. may be something like that, but you know, the body may be say, well, you know, you can watch the movies while, you know, we're, we're trying to, you know, save, save your brain. Hmm. And it, it may not have any meaning beyond that. 
Hmm. Interesting. Now, I want, Dennis, I really want to get into like the, the ecological nightmare that we're in. I was reading, I was reading this article. Do you remember, do you remember this, this movie that, that came out several years ago? It was, um, by M. Night Shyamalan. I think it was called The, the Happening, where these plants start releasing this compound that makes humans commit suicide or something like that. It was a really uh, out there movie. Really I haven't seen it. <laughs> it's <was> interesting. <laughs> And I mean, it, it's it was like the Earth was protecting itself because humans were killing it. And I, I read this read this article out of Reuters, and it I guess these this U.S. led team of scientists were um, drilling into the Arctic, and they found that now they found a bunch of plastic in the they drilled down into you know the core of the earth and they in the remotest waters on the planet found pieces of plastic there so you know this is an ecological nightmare that we're that we're in the middle of and it seems like it seems like people people don't care I mean, do they? I mean, until it until it's at their front door, do people really? I mean, there's some of us that care, but do, for the masses, do they care about what's happening with Earth? I don't think so. I don't think they care. I think until if it affects their lives directly, maybe it affects the the price of gas. Then they start to complain. Then they start to care. That's right. Well, I think a lot of them don't know about it, and uh, you know, and you know, there is a very active disinformation campaign to keep people distracted and to keep their attention away from, you know, these ecological processes which are actually threatening the existence of, of our species, certainly, and maybe all of life on Earth. I don't get it, Xavier. It's some kind of a cognitive dissonance, you know, where you know, uh, in the the real consequences of what we're doing to the planet are so horrible, they're too much to to contemplate in, in some ways. And so people, you know, naturally they retreat into denial. But denial is not going to fix the problem. And, you know, and, and I've, as you know, I've often said these plants – and experiences that they can catalyze are a wake-up call. In that sense, I mean, mm. I do think that the plant, that the community of species in the biosphere is intelligent. And I think that these plants are like ambassadors of the community of species. They just happen to make these neurotransmitter-like messenger molecules that impact our nervous system in in these particular ways and, and help us to wake up to the, you know, to the crisis that we face. The question is what happens when you wake up? What's the next step? Well, it's not so clear. You know, I mean, I mean, you, the, in part, the mission becomes, we have to get everybody woken up mm-hmm. and then maybe we can come to a consensus about what to do about it. If anything, you know, it may be that it's too late that we're that we're so far beyond any remediation that we could take for this kind of thing that you know uh, we're. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure that the solution is a human originated solution mm-hmm. at this wow. point. You know, we can stop 
to some degree we can try to stop what we're doing to you know not compound the the damage you know they say when you're digging a hole the first thing you do is stop digging right if we could do that literally then we might be able to turn it around but you know every time a new report comes out on the climate how rapidly it's changing and so on the time frame becomes becomes shorter and and so you know a few years ago it was that we had 30 years you know now maybe 20 years maybe only 10 years you know the window is becoming shorter and shorter are we going to wake up i think that's the question wow are we going to wake up and if we wake up will it be too late what what can we do to mitigate this and uh uh, you know, um, I don't really know. I mean, I mean Terrence, I think- Terrence was talking a lot about this before he died, yeah. and he was yeah. really big on this. And it didn't connect back then. And, and I, I think I agree with you. I think it might be too late. I mean, I've read the studies on this. I've, I've really dug into this, and I'm not sure there's a practical solution. I mean, we supposedly hit peak oil, like I think, in the 90s. And we're still dependent on fossil fuels. There's just not enough happening. There's not enough awareness. There's not enough taking place that's that is you know counter indicating that something is uh-huh. going to shift in our favor. And so, so if it's if it's too late for you know humanity, so be it. The you know humans they seem to do this. You know, like wherever they go is is they they take from their environment and and take and take and so it's it's a process of destroying you know their the ecology that's around them and i find that fascinating i find it you know fascinating that we can't find an equilibrium or a harmony within ourselves the way we live and the earth the home the planet that we exist on Right. We, we can't and, and we don't. And uh, it's dismaying. I think a lot of this, as I've often said, is a reflection of the, the, the sort of poison, the, the, the poison that has seeped into Western consciousness, you know, particularly West, the West. But really, it's, it's a human disease. But it, this under this this perception that we're not part of nature and that we own it, you know, it exists to serve us. Mm-hmm. And that sort of top-down hierarchical perspective is what's gotten us into this mess that we're in because we think that nature exists only to be depleted and exploited. Nature probably disagrees with that, you know. I mean, it has its own program and uh, – we, uh, you know, I don't worry so much about the survival of life on the planet. I think that life is very resilient mm-hmm. but and will adapt. There have been massive extinction events at various points in, in evolutionary history, sure. different cusps, you know, where 95% of all terrestrial life has gone extinct and so on. Sure. We shouldn't imagine that that can't happen again we will likely be among the first to go. Life will persist, you know, but it won't be as interesting as we are. It won't be as complex or problematic, 
after some millions of years, it may re-diversify, and who knows what will replace it. But, uh, you know, we are the problematic species. We're the ones that are putting all this pressure on the equilibrium states that maintain the smooth functioning of the biosphere. We are pushing all those envelopes. At a certain point, it won't be possible for it to snap back. And mm. then we're up, up the creek without a paddle, as it were. You know, is it going to happen? I don't know. It doesn't, looks, it looks doesn't very, seem like an if question. It, yeah, it seems yeah. like a when question to me. It's it's like when is it going to occur, not not if it's going to occur. Right. And right. um, I mean, who who knows? Who knows? Maybe there's a millennial out there that comes up with this really great idea, and and it's it's mainstream adopted, and maybe yeah, right. Maybe corporations back off of this. At, at any cost you know profit paradigm that we are in the middle of and it's not like we have a, a backup place to go to there's no there's no not yeah no nope. no nope. i mean there there is no other and and you know uh yeah there really isn't any place to escape to in fact, these all this talk about putting a colony on the moon, a colony on Mars, in the first place, the time frame for those things is much longer. I mean, we're likely to be confronting this crisis long before we could have any kind of uh, colony on another planet. And I'm, I'm sort of irritated by the idea, why does it have to be on a planet? Why don't we try to get ourselves a permanent presence in space. That's where all the energy and material are. That's where more or less yeah. infinite resources are. Sure. We need to, you know, become, build space colonies or whatever if we're going to look at a technological solution. I can't see that, that building another, uh, you know, a settlement on Mars so that we then have another planet to pollute and destroy um <laughs> you know what's to be gained in that in in space you can have all of these fairly dirty processes going on because space is already full of radiation and dust clouds and all of this stuff you know so so it's a great if you're a polluting species space is a good place to do it well may within limits you know i mean we're already turning near earth uh near earth space into a junkyard much to our detriment so i, I don't know <laughs> i mean i really don't know i i don't i, I mean the, I the like vedas to... talked about this a little bit and you know they described it as like we are in you know this age of kali yuga the dark age and as and these ages last you know so long like 150,000 years but it turns out um, someone on Graham Hancock's website actually posted this article that I read recently, and it was talking about how this this dark age, I mean, that's what it translates to, the Kali Yuga is supposed to end and shift into this new age around you know 2025 or so. So we've got about six years until we see this this shift and, and awareness change in people. And, and if you look at if you look at what's happening politically, it's just in America specifically, but just not not just America, but all around the world, people are protesting. Yeah. 
And I mean, everything is so charged up. It seems like we're on the precipice of something huge, something big that could change the course of where we're going and how we're getting there. Yeah, exactly. Everything seems to be getting destabilized. I mean, it's not going to be business as usual, you know, and and the question is, you know, there may well be solutions uh, to some of these, some of these climate, uh, you know, climate crises. I mean, there are technologies that could be solution. People are talking about geoengineering and all that, you know, and on the one hand, this is a radical solution. It's not something that, you know, a few years ago people would consider. But right now, things are uh, going to hell so fast. We might need to implement some some radical measures, you know. And I, but but the problem is, it's it's not that there are not solutions. There are solutions, but the the problem is on the policy level. You know, the the people who make the policy, who should be stepping up to the plate and saying, look, we have a problem here. Hmm. We need to have all hands on deck to solve this problem. All hands, you know, this this is something that threatens not just the United States or any country. It threatens us as a species. So earthlings, earthlings need to be responding to this. I don't see that happening. I mean, I think. You know, the the program of governments, particularly the U.S. government, but as you say, a lot of others seem to be very invested in denial and even making it worse, you know, reversing what pathetic policy initiatives they have made Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, now we don't believe in it or, you know, Trump says global warming is a hoax and (laughs) Everyone buys that. Well, it's not, you know, it's not a hoax. Uh, And, you know, we live in this, in this environment created by the media where it it actually distorts reality, it seems like, you know, Hmm. because the reality that we inhabit is created out of memes, you know, and the power of social media and all this mm. can propagate these memes, right. you know, throughout the global consciousness so quickly. Is there anything we can rely on mm. in terms of good information? How do you separate mm. good information from from lies and propaganda? That's a you know, great point. Yeah. Very hard to know. Yeah, I mean, have you noticed? Have you noticed, Dennis, that? I mean, people have changed. The world has distinctly changed since this advent of like the smartphone. Like, I mean, in my encounters with people when I'm out, I mean, I don't notice people ever looking up from their phone. They're so completely addicted. It's like they're they've they've devolved into uh, these like lower species monkeys. There's actually this question (laughs) that segues into this perfectly. Uh, Bandaloop asks. He says, um. What does Dennis think about Tony Wright's theory on fruit symbiosis being involved in our neural evolution and how humanity is now degenerating back into a typical mammalian brain? Well, um, I think there may be something to it. <laughs> uh, I I like Tony Wright's theory. Uh, in fact, I wrote the uh, wrote the foreword to his the first edition of his book, which was, which when it came out was called left in the dark. And 
it just makes sense to me. Tony's theory just makes sense that we we grow up, we evolved in this biodiverse environment. Biodiversity is reflected by chemical diversity. We were pretty much omnivores. We consumed lots of different plants and animals. We consumed a chemically diverse diet. We existed, we lived in, in a complex chemical ecology, right? So it just makes sense that these plant compounds are going to have an effect on, you know, our neural evolution, on many aspects of our evolution, either either directly affecting mutation rates or even through epigenetics and that sort of thing. So I think it's a perfectly reasonable hypothesis. And the idea that Tony brings forward is that, you know, we're, we've, we've sort of, you know, we've evolved into a place where we're actually in a neurodegenerative state now hmm. with the, with the deterioration of the human diet and all that hmm. many, many fewer fruits, more meat, more synthetic processed food, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff GMOs. has has and GMOs, all of these things have an influence on the quality of our diet and the, and the quality of, you know, you are what you eat, right? I mean, it's a common cliche, but it really is true. You know, what you take into your body from plants or animals is what your body is made of. And, uh, you know, so the processes that Tony is talking about, again, are, you know, they're co-evolutionary processes. They take place over large amounts of time. But, you know, I, I think that there's some, some validity to what to what he is talking about. Hmm. I mean, it's, it's interesting to look yeah. at the just the larger perspective of you know where things are headed how people seem to be behaving and you know just looking i mean in the information age i mean that's that's where we are now and where where you know i can transmit at close to light speed you know across the world a tweet or something like that and instantly make aware you know so many people about a certain topic but you know what's what seems to be important is just the most trivial you know uh, it doesn't really matter to your everyday life like what the kardashians are wearing or you know it's it's something like that it's nauseating (laughs) right well this this is yeah i mean i mean i think this is this is you point out this is the two-edged nature of these kinds of technologies you know i mean i like being able to hold in my hand an instrument that will you know let me tap into probably 90 percent of human knowledge you know Mm. if i am if i'm persistent enough you can get a lot of useful information out of these things unfortunately that's mostly not what people use them for you know, people, I mean, I, it, it's not clear. I, I don't, you know, people value their tribe. You know, they value their group. And these these communication devices like social media and so on, they, 
potentially they seem to reinforce our tribalism rather than facilitating communicating outside our tribal our tribal comfort zone i'm not sure is it the instrument or is it the human just human nature you know i tend to think it's human nature i i think that you know i i i say again and again you know technologies don't have moral qualities humans have moral qualities mm-hmm. you know and it's all about the decisions that we make about how to behave toward each other, how to utilize these technologies. You know, they can all be utilized for beneficial purposes. They can also be utilized for for destructive purposes, you know. And <laughs> uh, what we lack, you know, I mean, we're we're very clever in in what we can invent these these devices, what they can do. Mm-hmm. We're not very clever in how we use them, you know. So there's a there's a disjunct that has arisen between our innate wisdom, which I don't think you can get from you know an external source necessarily, mm-hmm. uh, and our cleverness. We're very very clever. We are not very wise that's the problem you know we we have too much of the technology uh, the mindset that you know well we can do these things therefore we will do these things we should do these things and we don't have the wisdom to step back and say is this really a good idea you know and and that applies to things like uh, you know ai and genetic engineering and you know all of these tremendously uh, powerful technologies that we can manipulate, you know, which, which have the potential to be extremely beneficial, but also completely destructive mm, yeah. if we misuse them. Where, where is the wisdom in, you know, where is the wisdom that we can bring to bear on that? And, and either how to use it in beneficial ways or how to make a, how to make uh, a conscious decision Let's don't do that. You know, let's not use it. Even though we could do it, let's don't do it. You know, and that takes a lot of courage and it takes it takes moral insight to come to that conclusion. Well, I mean the time is now, you know, it's it's not like we can wait around and and figure this out later. It's time to create awareness now and it's not just talking about it. It's it's actually going out and doing it. You first you 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 create the awareness and you you demonstrate that you understand what the problem is, which is that the planet is dying if we don't do something about this now, like now, like 10 years ago, then I mean I think it was Terence that said that you know we would we would hand our children's children the bones of of a dying world. Yeah, and that's pretty much what's happening. No. Yeah, unfortunately. So I mean that's that's why this this academy that you're creating is is so important um you know and and things like this and you know I feel like our our mission collectively is the same we're aligned in this idea of you know i i, I don't know collectively helping the the planet each other you know escaping this sort of result of you know extinction i guess yeah yeah 
Yeah, the Academy, like I said, it's a catalytic nexus for the transformation of global consciousness. So it is a place that is, you know, in the spirit of Eleusis. Uh, Eleusis was the longest lived and and really one of the last of the mystery religions. And, uh, you know, the Academy is founded in that spirit, you know, to be a place where you can bring the best minds on the planet together with the help of plant medicines, help people understand, reframe uh, their relationship to nature and to each other, and hopefully come a- come away with some solutions. So it's a kind of a, a think tank, I guess. It's an academy. But the think tank is, you know, to me the term implies that, well, you know, you have you have all these educational activities, you put out reports, you do these things, but you're kind of scratching your own belly button, you know, you're not really having any any impact. I want the academy to be different in the sense that it can be a nexus, it can be a place where brilliant minds can come together and try to come up with solutions, and, and not only brilliant, but also influential, you know, bring people together, bring people there to have these transformational experiences much in the much for the same reasons that people went to Eleusis. Mm. You know, this mm-hmm. was a lifetime experience that you you had, you were expected to have, and it it uh, you know, it was an influence for your worldview for the rest of your life. That's what I want the academy to be, a place where people of influence, power, uh, and brilliance can come and you know think confront our existential situation look at it from a different perspective with the help of plant medicines and uh try to come up with uh with some creative answers you know so so it's important that people share this but then then the next step is what do you lose what do you do when you leave the retreat what do you do when you go oh. home mm, yeah uh and some people are in a position to uh make some big changes i mean i, I really hope so you know and i mean as it says it, it, in this brochure that there are illnesses of the spirit and the soul and um, you know the plant teachers that's that's it's what's teaching us you know it's it's showing us ourselves and uncovering that i like i like to think of it as you know like in your mind there being a a closet and you know like you haven't opened this door for years and you know when you drink ayahuasca or have one of these compounds you it it kind of forces you or makes you encourages you to open that door and turn on that light in this dark space and and then pulls out you know one by one all these traumas and things that you've pushed away you know like you've mm-hmm. let manifest into disease and you know PTSD or anxiety or you know panic disorders who so many mental things that are, that are going on in the body um but i think primarily it's 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 a connection to the the spirit world where where are the roots of of you know where these problems occur and and that's what we need to need to look at and that's what plants give us the technology to do yeah that's right. That's right. I mean, it's interesting. Psychedelics, you know, I I do say they're medicines for the soul. 
in a certain way. They are, uh, you know, they, 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 they speak to us at the collective level. They, they speak to us at the species level, at the corp, uh, cultural level, and at the individual level, right? And that's kind of interesting. They are medicines for all of these things. You know, as a species, we are wounded, you know, and as a culture, we are wounded. And you can't live in this culture without being wounded. Hmm. Psychedelics can address all of that you know, from the individual level to the collective level, you know, to the species level. They've always been there. They've always been capable of that. And this has long been recognized by, you know, in, indigenous people who have mm. been kind of the stewards of this knowledge. Mm. Now the rest of us have to acknowledge it and, and get on board with it. You know, if, if we can, if you can persuade people. But, you know, I... Uh, it's dismaying, you know, uh, it, it, it's dismaying that, that things like reason, <laughs> you know, and truth and this sort of thing are not necessarily uh, respected anymore. I mean, we live in a world of, you know, memes, and many of the memes are false and deliberately made to, to be that way. So I'm not sure how you overcome that. I mean, was there, we're going to wrap here soon, Dennis, but was there a reason that you picked the Sacred Valley of Peru for the location? I mean, it's a beautiful place. Well, that's a good reason, you know, right there. Yeah, it's one of the most spectacular places uh, that I've ever been to, just in terms of the energy that's there. It's in the heart of the plant medicine tradition. That's that's also a big reason that uh, not only is there ayahuasca, but there are these other uh, shamanic medicines that are used. So there's a tradition around it. It's also in some ways, it's a microcosm of what is happening on the planet. I mean, even though the sacred Valley is a beautiful place and, you know, all of these things are going on, it also has its own environmental issues, mm. you know, due to climate change shrinkage of the glaciers and this sort of thing so partly you know it's a good it, it, it's a good it's well it's not exactly isolated but many people maybe think of it as isolated it's a kind of a shangri-la in a certain way it is a you know mountain retreat um i mean the the factors that led me to uh you know focus on the sacred valley are are as much personal as anything else, you know, because uh, I've been going there for quite a while now. I love it. And uh, I've been working at this uh, guest house there uh, with my retreats, a place called Wilkatika, which is uh, ideal location. If we ever are able to afford to buy a physical campus or acquire a physical location for the Academy, hopefully this would be the place. But just just for a combination of personal preference and, and also the fact that in some ways it's, you know, it's a microcosm of the rest of the world. So it's mm. a place where people can come and share these experiences and also get the cultural experience, you know, of the Incas who 
you know, uh, and, and the pre-Incas, I mean, this was a society that worked pretty well, you know, and to the degree that any society works. There's a lot to admire about the Incan, pre-Incan cultures. So, you know, there was not any one thing that made me focus on the Sacred Valley. Hmm. Dennis, I, I appreciate your time so much, your presence. I always enjoy, you know, having these conversations. It's been, it's been a while since we kind of caught up. I'm so glad that we had you here. And, and I'm so thankful that you're, you're creating this, this organization to, you know, further spread this. It seems like this will be, you know, a huge part of your legacy and really wish it the most success in the world. Where can people find more information about the Academy app? What is our website? Well, uh, yes, our website is uh, under construction. <laughs> we're we're building it as rapidly as we can. We've received uh, some donations, a little bit of seed money that's going to let us uh, go ahead with that. So they can always look at you know www.mckenna.academy. You know, and that will take you to the home page, such as it is. If people are interested in our retreats or the events, right now the best way to uh, find out about those is to send a, a message to events at McKenna.academy. And uh, my assistant, Christina, who handles registrations and so on, will We'll get back to you right away with an email and tell you, for example, about this retreat we've got happening in November and anything else that happens to be on the agenda. So numerous ways and eventually within, I would say within a couple of weeks, we should have, a, we should have at least a basic website up and open. So perfect. I mean, so so this is all you know happening as we speak, and it it should yes. be more concrete as time develops, and you know, it's it's there as a resource for people very soon. And and I'm glad that you were able to put this together. Um, I think that's well, it. I, I mean, is, is there? I've got some great people working with me. It's not just me. You know, it's got my name on it, but. <laughs> We're a collective effort, and I've got some really creative, beautiful people working on this with me. So, cool. Yeah. That's... So, so stay tuned, guys. That's gonna do us for HXP the show today. I hope you guys enjoyed this. It was really fun to talk to Dennis and get his perspective. Uh, it's quite sobering, but I mean, this is the reality that we're in and that we're facing. So it's important that we acknowledge it and recognize it and do so take action, do something about it. Um, if you're listening to this on the podcast version, get to YouTube, sub subscribe to us on YouTube, um, click the notification notification bell so that you get no notified when we go live. And if, uh, if you're feeling generous, get to iTunes and subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review. Um, one of the things that I hear the most is that most people have no idea that we exist and they find our show and they see all the guests that we've interviewed and they're, they're stunned that they hadn't found us before. So the biggest compliment that you can give us is by recommending us to your friends 
and your family and the people that you care about. Thank you so much for listening and your presence. Without that, the show would not be possible. We will see you next week.